In small societies, such as hunter-gatherers, warrior tribes, or rural farmers, honor and reputation form a large part of one's personal stock and trade. In larger civilizations, however, where power is measured in money and influence, honor becomes an inconvenience to accumulating wealth for the unscrupulous. The last honorable man in a society of scoundrels is at a distinct disadvantage. Today in America, or should we say the broader Western world, find ourselves at a point where the rewards for controlling others and the punishments for those that resist that control are straining the remnants of a once honorable tradition of truth, justice, and a spirit of independence. Tonight we are joined by James LaFond, author and anthropologist on the rise and fall of many such civilizations throughout history. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. Welcome to the show. Uh, you know the name of it. Uh, you know our names, hopefully. And we are with uh, probably our most frequent and certainly not least favorite, uh, perhaps most favorite guest, James Lafon, joining us. Uh, he has been uh, working hard, um, getting well, and uh, watching the state of things unfold. So we always like talking to him. We don't really have any fixed topics. We just thought we'd uh, get together and chat. So hello, everybody. Hello. Good Abend. Hello, hello. So I don't know what else we, we is new. Um, there's just more uh, more tyranny, more uh, more lunacy, more uh, idiocracy. Pick your poison. How long does this fucking country have? <laughs> <I don't know>. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to. I, I, uh, I don't think it's gonna make it. Some people to the, uh, 200, like 250 year anniversary. Yeah, I was hearing people debate <laughs> if they should uh, should leave or just wait out the winter and see how things go with like the almost certain. Um, uh, the flu is is actually COVID now, and uh, we're gonna need to lock you down again and all that. Um, I mean, I'm almost certain that's gonna happen, but it's already happening. You can't even work if you don't have a stupid uh, job. You know, it's so. actually already transpired in uh, in the country of Spain. Um, there was a minister in Madrid that came out uh, either earlier this week or last week and said that, well, the, uh, the mask mandates that have been in place for um, a year and a half now, uh, those will continue uh, due to uh, influenza. 
and because we saw such fantastic success with the masks in COVID, we should definitely continue it for uh, for another virus. Uh, this is, of course, like the uh, the global line of logic on what happened to the flu. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. A, a disease that has been with us for a very long time nearly went extinct. Uh, I think that there were what like two hundred cases in America. Uh, last year or so, it, it's basically an extinct virus, according to the uh, official numbers. But, uh, you know, they're already predicting that somehow this virus that has uh, practically vanished off the face of the planet will make a comeback. It's very, very interesting that they're able to foresee that. Uh, I think ever since this started, we've whenever we've had James on the program, we've ended up talking quite a bit about the plague and everything surrounding it. And I think that's because James, I consider to be America's leading anthropologist. And he has a lot of insight on the various types of two legs, both the human variety and the subhuman variety. And what we found with this, with what's going on is this is just like the human meat circus is just wilding out. I mean, we're seeing, we're just, we're seeing, human activity or you know two-leg activity that is just nothing i had expected that i would ever witness yeah i mean that picture I mean, you shared today fear. with like the girl with like a plastic bag over her head with a bunch of like sawdust or something stuffed into her shirt uh it looked like some kind of chinese uh cultural revolution stuff where they would uh publicly denounce uh counter-revolutionaries etc that um, I've I've been tracking the mask mask cultism for a year and a half now, and it's I I see the mask now as the vestment of the global cult. It's actually a religious vestment. I I watched a couple of Olympic events, uh, the swimming, and uh, the best female swimmer in the world had to give an interview with a soaking wet mask on and you could see her constantly expelling water through the mask uh and which is you know that Wait, could be did she swim with grades. it uh no they had to put the mask on for because she was soaking wet she puts the mask on before she can come near anybody so she's expelling water through this mask so a seventh grade science experiment, you know, could have been done right there to prove that there's no way that this mask would inhibit pathogens if water can literally flow th freely through it. Right. And um, you could tell by the way that the athletes were masking inconsistently and being shepherded that they were being surrounded and handed by mask police and the uh, most interesting thing to me was the best male swimmer in the world. He's this American stud from Florida. He swims like a dolphin. He doesn't even breathe. Uh, he, they, they didn't, when he won the gold, they didn't give you the, the shot of the gold, silver, and bronze medalist on the tiered podium anymore. All they gave was the close-up facial shot of the gold winner. And I guess it's because they had these huge white masks on that actually matched their, their uh, uh, athletic attire. And the camera people were trying to get an angle on his eyes because it was the only human expression you had. And he wore the mask through the entire national anthem. 
And as soon as the national anthem was over, a whole different protocol takes place where he rips the mask off and smiles at a camera for a publicist. You know, so this is that reminded me of what the politicians do. And I, I attended a Christian uh, denomination church recently where everybody on the altar, you know, the deacon and the preacher and the organist and the singer, they all had to wear a mask except for when they were speaking. When they're speaking, they're unmasked, but then all of the acolytes around them are masked. And this is the way all, all, I've seen all public speaking done for the last year and a half. And it puts the folk, it makes our celebrity culture more intense because the only person with a face is the person that's speaking, and everybody else are like their masked uh, acolytes. So I, I think it's here to stay. I thought that from the beginning I, because it's just, it, it, it's too cultic. And, you know, this is a, a nominally atheist uh, country. Uh, you know, that hates its own Christian portion. So I, I think it's a country that's hungry for religion. So I think we got it. It's, the uh, you know, death cast down from the proud tower. Did you see any of the photos from that, oh. Met, from that Met Gala event that, uh, transpired? Talking about AOC putting her yeah. rear end in front of the camera. <laughs> well, they, so the attendees, the, this, like what James is saying, and I encourage everyone to go look at some of these photos because it's uh, it's quite surreal. Uh, these people are wearing basically occult uh, garments. I mean, it's it's very off-putting and strange. Uh, you have several men dressed like women, several women dressed like men. Uh, it, it's it's just a it's a kind of celebration of of mental illness and uh, surrounding. All these celebrities, including several uh, elected officials, uh, are uh, the staff, uh, private security, um, production people, people who operate the cameras, the boom mics, the grips, all these sorts of people. There's hundreds of these people. Any kind of public event like this, you ever go to one, there's hundreds, thousands of people that actually make this fluid and work. And a lot of them are, are not paid very well. Um, a lot of them don't live very great lives. Uh, and you notice if you look very closely at some of the footage, normally it's very selectively edited in a way that's advantageous. But sometimes you can see these people are off kind of in the shadows, literally in the shadows, and they're masked up. Some of them have the goofy plastic face mask in front of the mask. Some of them have gloves. Uh, they are masked silent eunuch servants almost they've been reduced to uh, automatons they're not to speak they're not to show emotion they are only there to assist in the the production of the event for the for the important people there's something very psychosomatic uh and deranged about this about that kind of thing where if you are prominent and important enough and a celebrity you are allowed to not wear the mask if you are not <laughs> you're not one of those people then you are to wear the mask it, it 
it's can even you know I would suspect that most of those people are probably fully vaccinated. Uh, the the status of not wearing a mask is only conferred onto you if you are of some importance, or you can ignore it, or your face is a requirement for the whole point of the event. Well, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a privilege for the inner party. Yes. Would you describe it? Is, is this kind of in line with what you're thinking, James? This kind of wider cult that, oh, that is taking place? Yes, yes. And I think it gels very well with the existing celebrity cult, which is something that's purely modern. It's late modern. The first American celebrity was John L. Sullivan in the 1880s. So... Uh, it it worked very well. I've been reminded of Leonardo's teacher, uh, Verrocchio. Uh, one of his uh, one of the things that he did as an artist was he did funeral masks. He used to have funeral masks that uh, that the rich would wear that would be put on the corpse at the funeral, and the executioner. The executioner has typically been masked, and if you want to look at the celebrity psychology of the mask, I would highly recommend reading what I think is the best science fiction uh, ever written, and it's by Gene Wolfe, and the first of the four novels is titled uh, Shadow of the Torture, or The Shadow of the Torture, the the four novels together called The Book of the New Sun, but he's... The as an executioner, Severian, the orphan boy who is adopted by the people who murdered his parents uh, and raised as one of their own, he ends up joining a troop of traveling actors, and he's also points out that uh, in his retrospective narrative that what he did was a tor- a form of performance art. This and I've had a chance to. Uh, to read historically a lot about how executions uh, were handled in the Western world. And I think he was very faithful to the historical record when he, he wrote this far future fantasy. Are you, um, are you still traveling on Amtrak seeing the country? Uh, Oh yes, sir. I, uh, uh, that's been a, uh, uh, a, a, a study in mask cultism. I tell you, coming all the way across the country from Philadelphia to Oakland, California, this summer meant three solid days behind a mask. And the funniest bit of disobedience I saw, there was this immense black man behind me. He was this, you know, 400-pound toddler. I guess he was somewhere in his mid-20s. And he didn't have his mask on. Uh, but he did have a whole sack of snack food because you're, you you can't buy food or snacks with cash. You can't spend cash on Amtrak anymore. It's all electronic. So us pros either starve or we haul a bunch of food. I, I just eat salt and potassium for a few days. But this guy had a, a whole box of like these party bags of Doritos. So he got two warnings and then the conductor came back and was extremely nervous as he was telling this guy he was going to have to throw him off the train. You know, this is a middle-aged, uh, you know, Mormon guy. 
telling this uh, telling this big dude that. So he said, unless you're not actively eating, you have to have a mask on. And they tell you over and over again, when you take a bite, okay, while you chew, you got to put the mask back on while you're chewing. Well, what this guy did is for the next 32 hours, he ate constantly. Okay, and if he wasn't so, eating, what is that like a when, chip every uh, ten seconds? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. did he calculate it? Mean, literally had a had a case. The guy literally had a whole case of chips. So I mean, this guy had like thirty thousand calories of chips on him. And if he wasn't eating when the door opened, I would hear him start to crunch behind me, just in case it was a conductor walking through. So it was this uh, really gross form of, uh, you know. <laughs> disobedience which i enjoyed because you know all that guy had to do if the conductor got even a little apoplectic with him just pull out his cell phone and say you know excuse me sir like what what's your problem why why do why do you not want me on the train and the me the minute that any normal person sees a black person pointing the cell phone at them the smartest thing you can do is immediately walk away (laughs) walk away and pretend nothing happened and just completely drop the situation the minute that a black person points a cell phone at you your your life is ruined they're either they're either mocking you or they're attempting to uh, invoke an insane lynch mob of uh deranged 40 year old white women and other black people on the internet to hunt down your linkedin profile this I mean, this is this is this story across America. Like you can you can get away with these little forms of like grotesque rebellion now if you're black. Um, the, 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 everyone knows that the risk reward of engaging in any kind of any kind of interaction with these people is it just not in your favor. Even if it is, even, you know, the irony is even if it's in service to the cult. Even if it's in service to the system with the mask thing or what have you, there was a, those three fat black women that nearly beat a an Asian uh, hostess to death outside a New York City restaurant because uh, she asked for their vaccine cards, um, and they were I guess from Texas or something. Uh, you know, it was interesting how the story how, how the story was reported. It was three Texan women assault a New York City. Uh, New York City hostess over vaccine cards, right? Three Texan women, and then you have the uh, the massive um, kind of uh, internet lynch mob. Oh, you know those dumb fuck, uh, you know dumb fuckistan. Like you know, it's like Bush era jokes that come come out of the woodwork, and then it's revealed like like you know you have Lashonda and and Shaniqua. Like these are like forty year old black women. <laughs> Like physically assaulted a hostess for asking for vaccine information. And the story was immediately dropped. The charges were dropped. There was no like interstate manhunt. Yeah, it was it, it was surreal. Like you can basically well, you, get you away saw the with black kid thing. who shot up his school was uh, <laughs> was released from uh, confinement for seventy five thousand in bail while uh, James Fields was shooting his attackers. Um, and he had a $2 million bail set on him. 
So there, there's there's different rules for Kyle different, different groups here. You mean, yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse. What, what did I say? Whatever. Yeah, there you go. James Fields. Oh, yeah. James He's locked James up. Fields. Sorry. I'm, I'm mixing up uh, <laughs> political prisoners. But, uh, Never forget Charlottesville. Yeah, they're, they're both locked up. Well, one is potentially well, James, uh, James Fields' free, yeah. car was attacked uh, savagely. Yeah, it was. It was, yeah. Uh, I watched 26 videos mostly cell phone videos um this was eh, this was maybe six months after that happened I, I knew some guys that were down there everybody i knew i said don't go there it's an ambush and it was charlottesville uh Are you talking right about? right okay but the uh, the interesting thing was that these are some interesting points and i did not write about this because i didn't want to get in trouble and uh in fact i post stuff three months out of date i just finished posting last week for the rest of the year you know so i try to stay out of trouble by making sure none of my stuff is timely but um there was uh another car that looked exactly like his car both cars were circling around the neighborhood there was a red van that had been parked at a traffic light for 10 solid minutes just waiting there around the corner were two pre-positioned stretchers on wheels and there was a bunch of people that were being supervised as if they were extras in a movie. Maybe they were crisis actors. Uh, now, the the picture from behind that shows the two guys flying up in the air uh, over the car, uh, that vehicle that they almost get squished against is that red van. That red van had been there for 10 minutes. Now, there's another photo right after it that shows one of the guys that flew up in the air, who was actually a paid BLM guy. He was sitting on top of an SUV. Okay, now, you, you can see three views of him sitting on that SUV. Now, the view that you see of him sitting on the SUV that's taken from the red van, from that vantage, shows that inside this black SUV are two police officers. There's a large man with a crew cut behind the steering wheel. You can see his, his badge on. Brushing her hair into a ponytail is a short blonde police officer. You could clearly see this through the windshield, even though it was a tinted windshield. And two blocks behind them, on the same side, was a tactical vehicle. The exact type of tactical vehicle that I have, been, that I have seen used uh, during the Baltimore riots and to kick in doors uh, in Essex. I, two of these things drove by me one day when I was waiting for the bus at 4.45 in the morning. And it was a whole military, it was a paramilitary caravan. So that armored vehicle that was up there was the same type of armored vehicle that, uh, that SWAT teams in Baltimore City and Baltimore County use. I, I mean, to me, you know, so it, it looked like such a stage managed thing. I declined to even write anything about it. And I stopped looking into it. Uh, you know, just because it was uh, it was obviously just something that uh, uh, that was managed by people that are in a position to uh, do something about uh, somebody writing about it. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting in hindsight. Uh, all of the drama around that, 
what I remember even more starkly was the um, the mass unpersoning on the internet that occurred. Um, you had sites losing their DNS hosting, DNS hosting. Their domain registrars were dropping them. Uh, you know, they were losing DDoS protection. It, it was a, it was a complete uh, crackdown. Um, you know, social media networks had begun censoring people in mass. Uh, it's interesting uh, with this recent uh, bout of uh, of alleged Facebook whistleblowers uh, coming out, and uh, their whole conceit is that actually. Uh, they're not. They're not. Uh, they're not there to whistleblow on Facebook for censoring people. They're the, they're there to whistleblow on Facebook for not censoring people. And if you pay attention to the timeline that they establish, there's like th- th- three key events uh, that they talk about: Charlottesville, uh, the reaction to the the, uh, the election stuff, you know, during last year and January sixth. And that, uh, you know, in the eyes of the lawmakers and in the eyes of, uh, of some of these people at these social media companies that, like, these three primary fixed points in time define everything about the world we live in and the fact that, like, there wasn't some, you know, massive uh, <laughs> roundup of people, which is what I think people were assuming was going to happen, uh, especially after January 6th. Uh, you know the fact that that didn't happen has apparently angered lots of these people in power, and you know they they've, I think that they will start eventually kind of going after people for talking about uh, talking about what happened. It's I don't know if you've been paying attention at all, James, to uh, the stories around January sixth. Uh, Nick and I were chatting about it a little. Um, a lot of the reporting is being done by like a woman named Julie Kelly. I think that's her name, uh, and. Uh, Revolver News, uh, Jordan uh, Shaktol, uh, some of these guys, uh, and they've been establishing that uh, this Stuart Rhodes character, this like uh, militia movement leader, is more than likely a a federal informant, if not like just an FBI agent who's <laughs> like been running a massive militia movement for decades. Um, because he's named in all of these affidavits, he's named as a, as a co-conspirator, but uh, he has not. He has yet to be arrested. Uh, this guy has been named in lawsuits and affidavits for years, and he somehow like never gets caught, and he never gets dragged in to give testimony or to explain anything. I don't know if you thought, if if you had any thoughts. His on organization it. was at Charlottesville. They were. Uh, my opinion is, my opinion has been for a long while that uh, the 2015 uh, was a clinic for what was going to be done in the future, and, and that was done last year um, with all the BLM riots. The and in retrospect, uh, I was I was living in a camper. And uh, on January 6th, having a very nice time walking these giant dogs in the snow. Uh, and I get a text from a lady I've been dating for 28 years in Baltimore. And it was January 6th. She said, where are you? And I texted back, Washington. 
the phone immediately rings. I pick it up. She said, please tell me you're not the asshole with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk. And I'm like, what? She's like, there's like some kind of uprising going on in Washington, D.C. And I said, well, I, I don't know anything about it, but I guarantee you that it's the live fire exercise of the clinic that was run in Charlottesville in 2017. And it's only being done to scare the shit out of normal conservatives like you and or get them in trouble. And once I got back in the spring to Pennsylvania, I saw on a local penny saver that a man in his 70s who was on the board of, he was the president of the board of education for Washington County, Pennsylvania. He was, uh, uh, he was deposed from his position, whatever you call it, because he was found out to have read QAnon material. And this was all in the wake of, uh, the, the reason for getting rid of him was that January 6th was a QAnon operation and he was a supporter. And I, I have three guys that I coached that I stayed with in other communities in Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania, who had neighbors who had been arrested and were just being held. And one of these people was also a senior citizen. The other one was a 20-something Latino guy. Okay? You know, these were, uh, you know, and... In that case, a friend of mine actually saw him being taken away by guys in suits. So uh, just amongst the people I know uh, in the areas I stayed in in Pennsylvania, uh, there's, uh, there's three people uh, that were just rounded up. And this was months later. These were people that were being rounded up in April and March. I think that there's still a few dozen that are being held in solitary. Uh, I believe Joe Biggs is one of them, and he's still in federal lockup. Uh, and a lot of these people are being held on actually very light charges. Uh, or normally when they actually go to the judge for a pretrial hearing or uh, when the judge is talking about the charges being you know leveled against them, uh, most of these judges uh, – Generally, whenever this goes to trial, say, well, there's no basis for some of these charges. You're charging this man with domestic terrorism and sedition. And, you know, at worst case, he's, he's guilty of larceny and tres you know, trespassing on federal property, which, uh, if this is a first time offense, is normally like a fine. <laughs> you know, like if you accidentally trespass on federal property and you actually like, get arrested for it, normally it, they just let you go after an hour. Uh, but it was very, you know, it's very peculiar. They, they don't have a lot of legal standing against most of these people, but I think that uh, it, it's, it's sort of an intimidation tactic. It's a very, it's a very, uh, very obvious intimidation tactic of we can hold you on um, effectively very low-level felonies or just misdemeanors. Uh, we can hold you indefinitely. We can draw out your trial. We can make you um, unhealthy and and uh, mentally deranged by keeping you in solitary confinement for long stretches at a time. Uh, it's it's very kind of. Uh, uh, you know, late stage empire 
in in how it functions. You know, or uh, the whole point is to keep people from getting any ideas. You know, the uh, the the establishment clearly feels as though they they are not on very thick ice. And the only way to kind of prevent any they're, real they're attack. deliberately radicalizing yeah people who otherwise they're radicalizing the kind of people who believed we lived in like a society or something like that <laughs> <laughs> these are people who probably like up until a few months ago believed in the importance of voting and uh and civil authority <laughs> like it, it is it is fascinating. Yeah, Some, something about the the political. They believe that America didn't run gulags or torture yeah, yeah. dungeons. You know, they 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 didn't really understand that there's a criminal syndicate that extracts wealth from them and will torture and murder them if need be. Well, here's a question for everyone, including James. Given the last two years of nearly two years of drama, I mean, we're coming up on two years of the plague. It's it's actually kind of unreal. Um, uh, we're actually at the uh, technically or the official story. We are already past the one year anniversary, apparently when it was first detected. Although I doubt that that's accurate. Or, or I'm sorry, we're past the two year mark uh, from October 2019. But after nearly two years of this drama. Do you think that it was part of their intention between the plague, uh, the election drama, the false flagging, uh, the, the strange entry point of occultism into politics, the uh, immense levels of sexual degradation that have gone on in the American culture the last two years? Was all of this, you know, did they, did they foresee that this would be creating a lot of people who not too long ago would not have considered any kind of cynical viewpoint of America. Do you think that this was an intention or is, are they just playing a very precarious game where they're trying to hedge their bets against, uh, you know, we can, we're trying to get as much done as we can in a short amount of time, because if we start to do too much, people will, grow unsatisfied the public will grow unsatisfied and cynical i think it's the latter but i i don't know i mean obviously it would not benefit them if people were skeptical of their uh, plans and so i don't think they would want that um do are they are they uh predicting that that's going to happen uh, even though, you know, they, they don't want it to probably to some degree, maybe not to the degree that it's happened. Um, I still believe that they, frankly, if I were them, I would probably continue what they're doing. Um, because it seems to be affecting the majority of people into the strategy and policies that they want. Uh, and it, it further separates the people that they don't like from those people. And it gives the people that are being obedient incentives, to continue following them because they get uh, rewards for ratting out the other people. Um, and it, it's, it's as petty as, you know, your local Karen uh, shaming you on Facebook to win status points. And then it, it's as bad as people literally being hired to uh, join the, the nursing staff as a national guardsman in New York. I mean, how absurd is this? Uh, you know, if you don't get vaccinated as a nurse, um, 
so there's monetary rewards. There's uh, there's monetary punishments for certain if you don't uh, if you don't obey, and uh, and it's it's throughout the entire Western world. And so I think you know you talk about like cynicism and, and skepticism of the plan. I think anybody who hasn't noticed that the level of coordination throughout the Western world. Um, they, they need to realize that this stuff is, is coordinated. I, you just can't not see the pattern. Um, and I think a lot of the different implementations, this is my personal point of view, but I think the different implementations throughout the Anglosphere, especially places like Canada and Australia and the United States and the UK, um, where you see different levels and different types of restrictions being experimented with, I think indicates that they're not really sure what's most effective, but I think they're, they're just trying out different ideas and, you know, Australia being probably the most ridiculous, uh, with literal concentration camps for people who don't want to get a shot in their arm. Uh, and then Canada, you know, being as, ridiculous as it usually is. They're raiding people's houses in the United States. I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, they're the nonstop media barrage, the UK. Um, I don't know. It's sort of a blend of all that, but um, I, I don't think they want people to not obey, but I, I think they're willing to accept that some people won't. And I think it's actually good in a way because then they can identify the the troublemakers that they they would like to get rid of anyway. Um, so if I were them, you know, it seems to be working. It, it's like a kind of almost like a bourgeois totalitarianism where what's so strange about all of this is you have so many things getting worse in every respect. And there's this pl- like meme plague that is not threatening to you if you're a healthy person and there's all these other things that are absolutely a threat to you, namely the police state, the fucking economy, if you can call it that. I mean, it's you have to be a certain type of person to actually, you know, have this mon- monomaniacal obsession with this thing. You have to be a very particular type. And what that allows is it allows for a total purge across, I mean, yeah, really across the Anglosphere altogether, just a total purge of anyone who is potentially non-compliant with the system and who is not a collaborator. But, um, in 2016, I read the collected works of, I think, Theodore Kaczynski. And there was one thing that he wrote that's been echoing in my mind ever since was that when uh, a system of control becomes self-aware, if it is faced with resistance, then it will gear up and not be able to gear down. That made a lot of sense to me because in the big scheme of things, uh, four years of having a loudmouth New York guy that actually cares about his country in charge shouldn't be a huge uh, problem for a hundred-year-old system. But at a certain level, apparently, he was right. The system becomes uh, instinctive, 
because it's not a it's not some grand conspiracy. I don't. Th- I think there's plenty of sub conspiracies, and there's probably a few big ones. But because conspiracy is an actual state of human social organisms, and that's why we're taught that there's no such thing as a conspiracy. But uh, I've done a lot of reading of the history of military units, and you could take something like the French Foreign Legion, that its members. Most of his members only serve for five years, just like the there's no part of your body, I think, that lasts more than seven years. Yet the French Foreign Legion turning over all these people maintained this consistent identity to the point where it even uh, fought back against uh, its identity uh, with the Algiers crisis. So I think that everybody that works for a system as big as uh, you know the U.S. federal government—they're like a cell that's actually got instincts that are their instincts are all in line with growth of the system. They want their child to be able to get a job, doing what they do, working for the government. So everybody in the system that has a hunger and a thirst to grow because it instinctively knows that when it stops growing, it starts to die. Everybody else in that system also has this thirst for power and outside of the system uh you have people that were although they don't know it they're almost all descendants of slaves and uh they have a they have a thirst for status so that that feeds so then you end up with the mob uh the american mob ends up with this uh, mirrored mentality of the system of control. So you have a lot of willing executioners uh, just in the celebrity culture. And you could really see that at the beginning of this baseball season, uh, every single uh, every single news break there was in a baseball game in three different places where I saw baseball games, and all in the eastern states, before the paid programming came up, there was a celebrity baseball player telling you to do the right thing, get in line when it's your turn, you know, get vaccinated. You know, so I think that uh, the status hunger of the celebrity system and the people that worship the celebrities, uh, I think it it's very easily cultivated by the people that are consciously and unconsciously in control. I think Nick described it as a uh, as a as an Anglosphere purge, uh, and it certainly has that hallmark quality. Uh, you can see the purge going on in um, some uh, let's call them cousin nations or, or cousin civilizations, uh, but it is particularly remarkable in the Anglosphere. Uh, there's probably a lot of good reasons why. Uh, but I think that it, it is instructive to look at places like Canada in uh, Australia as good indicators for what this really is. Uh, within Australia, uh, and I'm sure some of our listeners have been probably paying attention to some of what's been transpiring there, uh, you now have a situation where uh, effectively – there is no hope uh, for you to persevere in almost any walk of life if you do not accept 
uh, vaccination. And not just vaccination. In certain states in Australia, uh, I believe in, uh, in, in Victoria, which as I understand it is arguably the most authoritarian right now, uh, a positive infection, even if vaccinated, can land you in one of these quarantine facilities out in the middle of uh, the Australian outback. Uh, you're not inside of a hotel in a city. You're not in a hospital. You are sent hundreds of miles away from everyone you know. Uh, and you are trapped in one of the most inhospitable parts of the world at a facility of some kind. Uh, you can kind of see the logic of where this is going. Uh, even if you accept vaccination, even if you accept all the social uh, contingencies, even if you accept all of the problems of life in Australia and you don't speak up too much, you don't cause a problem, you don't say anything. Uh, if they simply wanted to, they could say, you have tested positive and we have reason to believe that you could be uh, infectious to others, and you could develop very bad symptoms, we advise you to take a trip to our quarantine facility. Uh, and when they advise you, it's not really advising. They're telling you. And they pay for the transportation. They take you there. But you can see where this goes. If you had at any point expressed discomfort or anger at the government on any issue. Uh, if you were maybe, maybe you know, fairly right-wing and you were anti-immigration, you were uh, pro-tariff, wh whatever your positions are, even if you got, even if you abide by all their rules, you can see the mechanism to disappear you is now in existence. The perfect cover for completely unpersoning you exists. Because how easy is it for them to say he developed adverse symptoms from uh, a breakthrough infection and he unfortunately passed away at our facility hundreds of miles from any sign of civilization? And there's, there's total commonality. The commonality here is it's, it is a, I said bourgeois totalitarian, specifically it's, it's white liberal bourgeois totalitarianism. That's, that's the common denominator in all these Anglosphere countries. That's the class. It's people, the educated class, who are many of whom are working the permanent apparatus of the system, but they're not working class people, and they're completely divorced from the concerns of ordinary people, whether, you know, whatever color they may be. I mean, there, there's some really interesting schisms happening. Uh, for example, I saw a, uh, I heard a clip of, uh, it was some colored organization, some interest group that was asking Joe Biden about what he had done for that. It was a, what have you done for me lately kind of question. And he responds with absolute hostility talking about, well, like, you should shut the fuck up and listen to, look, I did all these things. I'm not going to say what they are, but I did them. And then he starts fucking talking about Charlottesville. It was, it was very interesting because 
that that just shows you that the only constituency, the only part of the coalition that they care about appealing to are the religiously motivated, the ideological fanatics uh, of, among the white liberals. That's the only they think that they can do this whole thing with them, that that's that's the only group that they need. Obviously, you know, the capitalists and the Jews, too. But as far as like the public facing uh, aspect of the system, the only support for the system that they feel a need to secure is the white liberal. And you see that with, with the plague politics. That's what it is. I mean, it has all the hallmarks of these people totally divorced from working class realities and completely obsessed with some kind of therapeutic safety. That, uh, I took a few mask surveys when I was back east. Uh, I'll give you an example of uh, Whole Foods. And I know a lot about supermarkets, what kind of people work in what departments. Uh, this was during that sweet time when there was no mask mandate in Pennsylvania, you know, for a couple of months. Um, half of the customers roughly were masked. The working class people, not so much. All of the upper crust people, they're mostly masked. The cashiers were half masked, half not masked. The meat room, the meat department, not one of those people had a mask on. And those people, psychologically, they're very much like your carpenters and masons and bricklayers and pipe fitters. You know, they're basically, they have a trade mentality. Every single member of the management team was masked. And along with this, as I'm back east, I have, uh, I'm experiencing reports from friends because I'm not actively conducting a broad-based violence survey anymore like I used to, but people I know tell me what happens to them. Uh, there, there was only one, in, in Baltimore in 2015, there was, uh, that was a sea change. Murders went up by one-third. Every other type of violence, except for one, went up between times two and times ten. The only type of violence that did not increase was police violence against blacks. That's the only type of violence that decreased in Baltimore. And now, since the BLM riots last year, we're seeing that the only type of violence that's not on the increase is police against blacks. Every other type of violence is up. And since January the 6th, there has been a new type of violence that was almost unknown, and I have six friends that this happened to. They are all working-class white men, and they were all aggressed upon by gatekeeper white people, okay? Whether it was a liquor store clerk, okay, which in Pennsylvania is a government employee, okay? All of the people that performed aggression against them were not working-class, they were, uh, they were like, in what Adam would say, an aspirational class person, okay? Um, like the people that worked at the liquor store. Uh, I have a 40-year-old friend that's an HVAC tech. He's going into a supermarket, and a bigger, younger guy in his 20s starts telling him to mask up, okay? Uh, my friend Rick, who just finished chemo the day before this incident, and he's 58 years old, and he's lost 40 pounds of muscle. Okay, he looks like an old man. He's at a gas station, and a 40-year-old white man 
who is four inches taller than him and 100 pounds heavier than him, picks a fight with him just because he doesn't like the way this older white guy that we were fixing his porch. So Rick looked like a working class guy. Well, Rick beat the shit out of him because Rick's Rick and this, this asshole didn't know that. But these are just two examples of violence against working class white guys being triggered by liberal people that have the phone that call the cops. Okay, I have a friend in California who stopped going to public places and started ordering stuff in to be delivered to his house because anytime he stood in line, some older, he's like a 30-year-old guy, but some white woman in her 40s or 50s would come out from behind the counter and say, sir, are you okay? Is there anything I can do for you? This guy's a little bit autistic. He thinks a lot. When he's standing in line, he's thinking about stuff. Uh, and she's suggesting that she needs to call the police because he looks disturbed. Uh, and half of these attacks are verbal attacks in which the person is trying to get my working class friend to talk back so that they can call the police. Okay. And the other attacks are just uh, bigger, younger white guys with liberal sensibilities threatening to beat up older, smaller white guys that work with their hands for a living because they, the message is out. Everybody now knows who you can get away with attacking and they all want to be in good with the system. It, and I don't even think this is conscious. I think this is subconscious. It's just this mob hysteria instinct. It's not just violence. Um, and this is a carryover, not necessarily from the COVID stuff, but more of the de-policing and BLM uh, activism of the past year yes. plus. Uh, there have been an increase in petty uh, shoplifting events throughout the country. And in San Francisco in particular, uh, Walgreens began pulling out. Um, you know, about when the BLM stuff started and they officially just uh, closed their last doors uh, because there's no police uh, enforcement whatsoever of uh, shoplifting. And it can go as high as $1,000 or more. And frankly, it's probably more than $1,000 because the official law states that you cannot be um, charged with anything if it's under 1000 but effectively, there, there is no enforcement in that city. Uh, and people are literally bringing in duffel bags. Uh, they're shoving things into their pants. Uh, these guys are wearing hoods, but, you know, the race is as you would expect. And there was actually an incident <laughs> recently where there was a, you know, middle-aged white guy who probably grew up in the Bay Area and saw the place fall apart. And he got a little fed up with this. There were some car, car break-ins on the Embarcadero in San Francisco. And... Uh, the guy was pissed that nobody was doing anything. I mean, I, I've, I've observed this in major cities for years now that, you know, the, the typical office worker is too afraid to do anything uh, that uh, requires some masculinity and bravery and courage. Um, so nobody else is doing anything. So he stood out and, and, and yelled at the guys who were breaking into the cars. One of them pulled out a gun and shot at him. Um, and this is fairly atypical for the the types of thefts that were going on over the past 10 plus years throughout the Bay Area. Um, but this is the first time I've heard of actually the criminals shooting at bystanders. Um, so th this is an escalation. But the police have been repurposed. I believe the police uh, are going to... Go ahead. Go ahead. 
Well, it's a similar. I'll, 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 okay, so it brings. It's a question I had earlier, and it's on point to this. And it's the way I look at this is not that there's been so much an escalation per se. It's more that there was a very fragile veneer, a, a myth around the existence of like civil society. I don't think it's existed, but I think that enough people believed it did. And re what recent events have shown, they've dispelled the mystique around it. I think personally, my, I'm curious what your opinion is in particular, James, but in my view, I think this, the, the question would be, at what point was this possible? And I think it's been possible for a long time. It's just that it only happens now that there's been a widespread media boosting of of this where it the it's spelled quickly and amongst areas of america that otherwise uh, would continue to believe the lie well the the belief in the in the civil society has been buttressed by a lot of punishments for taking care of things with your own hands my entire family was driven out of baltimore basically because the national guard in 1968 took the side of the blacks against the Pollocks in Patterson Park, okay? I mean, that's basically my entire family fled East Baltimore and Northeast Baltimore and the entire family of most of the people I worked with. And it all stemmed from the fact that you knew as a white person, you were not allowed to defend yourself against a black person in 1968, okay? Your life was going to be over. So, and the instinct, once all of my family and friends, most of them, not all of them, some of them kept their sense about them, but for the most part, uh, if you tell a white a person who has now lived in the suburbs for 20 years, hey, these three guys tried to attack me. Well, what did you do wrong? Okay. My cousin... Megan got raped on Bel Air Road at 11 o'clock at night, right there in the gutter, okay? And the question is, well, what did Megan do wrong? Okay, so the, one of the things that has supported that notion of the civil society on one end is the fact that you know you're not allowed to uh, defend yourself as you would in a pre-civil honor culture society, okay? Because to me, a civil society is post-honor culture. The other thing that kicks into gear, and maybe it's this uh, subconscious uh, way that we guard our psychology against uh, the fact that we're being ruled in this manner, is that you will always blame the person that gets attacked for the attack. This is a knee-jerk reaction. I have interviewed over a thousand people about thousands of acts of violence, okay? And this is it. You, this girl that I interviewed got stabbed in the chest by this Dominican guy who tried to abduct her. This chick was beautiful, okay? I'm absolutely certain, based on the circumstances, that she was going to be sold into slavery. This happened in Manhattan, okay? This is a five foot eight inch, 115 pound, really good looking chick that's like 27, okay? Well, she survives the attack. She's fighting him. He stabs her in the chest and says, shut the fuck up. And he walks out because he had a window to get her into a car out of that stairwell. Well, the cops show up and they immediately start blaming her for the attack. Where are you hiding your boyfriend? We know your boyfriend did this to you. Where are you hiding him? What's the matter with you? 
Okay, you know, so this is blanket all through our culture. This idea that being attacked is your fault. You breached civility somehow. And of course, part of the civility contract is you're not allowed to defend yourself. Okay, so the system evolved to always punish the effective aggressor, the effective defender over the ineffective aggressor. So uh, I'm actually glad that this system has broken down because it's artificial and it is and it has buried a whole lot of violent crimes under the surface. I know a lot of people who have been locked up for successfully defending themselves. I, I have a, perhaps a, a different take James, on that. It, it's I, not, not to, not to I, dispel some of your point of view, but I think some of it, at least from the cop's point of view, is that they simply don't want to do their job. It's harder to actually find the criminal uh, than blame the victim. And I think it's just sheer laziness. Uh, and also the fact that the risk reward for them to actually go after a person of color today yeah, but- is terrible. And so I think they're reluctant to do any of that. And they, they make excuses for why they're not doing their job. But I think that's, oh, that's well, part of it too. That's a, that's an aspect of it. But uh, the Adam, police when you, example when I When you gave say you, job though, that right. presupposes it. Right. But the uh, police, pre- the, when you say cop doing their job, that presupposes the, the right. this myth of civil society. Well, Existing. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. You know what I mean, man. So my focus wasn't the police example. That was just one example. Uh, my focus was really the fact that something like 50 times my mother has blamed me for black men attacking me. And she's begged me not to harm any of them. Oh, for certain. Yeah. No, it's, okay, it's throughout so, the culture. So that, was, that was my main focus. The cops is a whole other can of worms. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> but yeah, you're right there. And Nick is right. Too. I think what James is saying, though, it, it goes a long way to explain what we were just talking about, namely the psychology behind individual level of aggression from the white liberal PMC class. It 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 really does check out, as far as I'm concerned, because it's almost like a psychological defense mechanism. When they're confronted blatantly with the reality of oh, the yeah. system, in, they, they don't want to admit their ideology is wrong. Uh, they, they they don't want to accept that. They want to blame you. I, I get it. Um, yeah, uh, that's just uh, that's just human, uh, frankly. Um, I can give you one example of this in operation. Okay, I I walked a woman home from a Seven Eleven in Portland down Powell. I walked her about 10 blocks down Powell, uh, and it was getting pretty bad. Uh, this was last year. And uh, she was telling me about being attacked. It was somebody I casually noted I'd met in a bar, okay? Uh, her boyfriend had to go to work, so he forgot he was supposed to give her a lift to go buy a car. So she went out to a bus stop in front of an auto zone. At the bus stop, a very large black man in a nice car rolled up and said, hey, baby, get in. And she's like, no, I'm not getting in a car with you. He gets out and he says, you got to get in with me. And she says, no. He comes over and he grabs her. Okay. And I actually worked with her on her knife draw. She was asking me if, you know, the way she used the knife was effective from what I know about it. And uh, she did a good job. Uh, When he grabbed her, she pulled out her knife and she hid it. 
the thing that she was most terrified about, she knew she wasn't going to get raped. She knew she was going to stab the shit out of this Negro. She was a big, strong girl. I wouldn't, you know, if, with a knife in her hand, I wouldn't want to tangle with her, okay? She was like my height, and she was heavier than me. She's very strong. Uh, what she was terrified of was that three white male AutoZone employees were watching. They weren't doing anything to defend her, and I wouldn't blame them because you can't do anything against a black person because they're the new nightly class and you don't even have to have the silent K in front of the N, right? So every American can spell it. <laughs> uh, uh, she was terrified that she was going to have to stab this guy and then those three white guys who could describe her well would then call the police on her. That was her main fear. Okay? And this is a girl that is very worldly okay she has she knows a lot about men okay she's a very good judge of masculine character she knew this guy was going to drug her up and pimp her out she knew i was going to walk her home and not try to get into her pants she knew these guys were going to call the pigs okay so she's uh she was a very worldly person i trust her judgment on this and uh yeah so that's another example of where that civil society guarantees the criminal a certain amount of latitude it also guarantees the criminal police officer to me a police officer is just a different type of criminal it also guarantees him a certain amount of latitude so uh that's why i'm glad to see the veneer being ripped off of the civil society but the danger is is that the hysterical covid mob is always going to be wanting to find a way to slap a veneer back on it and it's going to involve a lot of finger pointing and trying to direct whatever authority there is against you if you don't you know if you don't please the mob hysteria you know, it's something to what you're saying about both, uh, uh, you were mentioning the uh, kind of uh, subconscious warfare against the working class white guys that started since the January 6th event and, uh, and, and the COVID psychosis as well. Uh, I'm a big fan of a, of a show called No Agenda. and um, I'll listen they, to it. Yeah, yeah, great show. And, and they have been playing clips from the sociologist uh, – uh, Matthias Desmet from Ghent University in Belgium. And um, uh, his fascinating guy has been doing a lot of uh, psychological research into the COVID phenomenon. But I think it's what what he's come up with is uh, uh, applicable to many more social phenomena than just COVID. And something that he said that I have here, it, it was a, a talk he actually gave in um i believe in flemish but it was translated and uh you know he basically said uh his you know the the main uh terminology he uses is called mass formation this is what he uses to describe the social phenomena that's going on uh and uh he said in the corona crisis public opinion is in the grip of absurd judgments mass formation often arises in a social climate saturated with unease, fear, lack of meaning, see, for example, the 300 million doses of antidepressants per year in Belgium and the burnout epidemic. In such an atmosphere, the population is extremely sensitive to stories that identify the cause of their fear. 
and thus create a common enemy, the virus in this case, which must be destroyed. This yields psychological gains. First of all, the fear that was previously indeterminately present in society is now becoming very concrete and therefore mentally more manageable. Secondly, in the common struggle with the, quote, enemy, the disintegrating society finds a minimum of cohesion, energy, and meaning. The fight against it will be a mission fraught with pathos and group heroism. In the more extreme cases, this puts society in the kind of daze it also occurs in the mass that sings together or chants slogans. The voice of the individual dissolves in the overwhelming light vibrating group voice. The individuals feel behaved by the masses and inherit their energy. What exactly is sung doesn't matter. What matters is that one sings it together. What one thinks does not matter. What counts is that one thinks it together. And what you were saying earlier, that there's something uh, subconscious, not even that these people are not cognizant of what they're doing necessarily. This fits. This pattern fits. The, 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 the black warship during the riots last summer where you have uh, thousands of white people gathered together in public formation, uh, screaming, uh, uh, no justice, no peace, say their names. These are these are these are like, you know, this borders on the occult, but this is definitely a strange psychological phenomena where, as he's describing, these people are not even fully aware of what they're doing. They're sort of caught up in it. And so are the people who are suffering from the mask culting. So the people who are picking, you know, subconsciously picking fights with what would appear to be, uh, you know, maybe just slightly different or working class uh, older white white guys. It's the same thing motivating it. There's just something unconscious that is now seeped into everything and everybody. And it's the same for the white guys you're describing at the auto zone. They don't exactly know what they're doing. They don't know why they're just standing there. They just know that the other two guys, each guy is looking at the other two guys and saying, they're standing there, I'm standing here. I'm not getting, they're not getting involved, I'm not getting involved. There's not much real thinking going on anymore. And this is, you know, this is kind of a society, I don't even know if it's captured by a cult. I think it's a society that's just generally mentally ill. Uh, and he has, you know, this this uh, uh, Desmet professor Desmet. He has brought up many times that for many years, many many years, we've had incredible uh, worldwide consumption of antidepressants, SSRIs, antipsychotic medica- medications, uh, or I guess psychotropic medications. We've we, we've had such consumption, mass consumption of mind altering substances for so long. In another talk, he brought up the possibility that uh, it, it's possible that the, the last two years of, of drama combined with many years of, of, uh, of repeated mind-altering substance abuse has effectively made hundreds of millions of people mentally ill. It's he, you know, very possible that many people are just um, completely mentally ill and because it's the only thing that can really explain why they're acting this way i think we you know we kind of we laugh and we have a good time you know kind of surveying the the collapse of the empire and how weird people are now but there has to be an explanation we can't it it can't just be that we're the only sane people left and uh, his estimation is that uh, 
between the substance abuse and the, the, the traumatization of a sort of media agenda the last few years uh, has, has really broken people. Um, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this too, but it, in my personal experience, I've, I've met people who I think are um, mentally ill now. And I get the impression that they were not at some point in their life. And something has really gone on that has uh, made them like this and has made people afraid to intervene when they see violence. It's made people afraid to question the, disease, the plague narrative. It's made people um, aggressive without them even realizing against people that look like the, quote, enemy, right, the working class white guy that was at the January 6th rally. I think the big change is that uh, the system has gotten into people in a way that it, before there existed some degree of neutral spaces. And this is the reason I also think that a lot of white dissidents tended to kind of exist in maybe a conservative type space, maybe leaning a little bit more bourgeois because it they came from a place where there wasn't a lot of immediate necessity of the system ruining their lives and affecting them. And that's why you see like people who otherwise maybe 20 years ago would have been like Republican voters are now just completely disenchanted with the system and are in their own lives basically downwardly mobile, as they say. And it has to do also with technology. I mean, it's like I, for example, a personal anecdote perspective, I've never... I've always been hostile to the system, hostile to the system's media, its messaging, whatever. I've wanted as little to do with it as, and as time has gone on, it's become harder and harder to escape it. And the thing that the plague has done is it's made it impossible to escape. I mean, that when, when you see messages just in public, you're, you're supposed to know what they mean. Like when someone says, did you get the vaccine? It's like, what, what vaccine? Measles, smallpox. What are you fucking talking about? Well, it's not it's even like, oh, a I'm vaccine. You know it, it's an mRNA gene about. therapy treatment that is not a vaccine. But you know, right. the, the programming is so strong. I, I'm just saying, they, there's no more neutral space. No, no I get your point. I get your point. I, I'm just, I'm uh, just reinforcing you know, the, the, the absurdity it, of it all. Yeah, the program. Uh, but the definitions are going to follow the programming. Okay, uh, Lynn just told me. Uh, that uh, I forget what's medical online dictionaries. I think it's uh, the AMA. Hmm. Uh, they have redefined vaccines now because that wasn't that wasn't a vaccine. They've redefined it. They've re yeah. the American Pediatric Association has redefined has redefined infant and toddler facial development to go in line with masking you know so this is uh the american they psychological they association that, has done the same thing with they homosexuality they transsexuality it's it's following a political agenda not a mm -hmm. i don't know well, they didn't just thing. redefine at the pediatric level they active they were caught actively deleting published papers from their numerous online archives I mean, some of these papers go back decades talking about the importance, the psychological importance of children watching human facial movements and understanding how to the morphology 
of forming words with your mouth and your given language is incredibly important. They were caught deleting hundreds of resources that have been publicly available for years uh, because they came out with this bizarre, as you said, this bizarre statement saying that actually uh, child, children do not need to survey human facial movement to pick up on communication skills. And immediately, several people, medical professionals, including other pediatricians, pointed out this contradiction. Well, you have hundreds of, literally hundreds of pieces of literature that going back years. That, I mean, this is settled science. And it's just intuitive, even if it wasn't settled science, it's completely intuitive. Disprove what you're saying. And I said, oh, you're right, thank you. Uh, and they deleted it promptly. So, so it it's it's an an intense level of of definition. Uh, or I'm sorry, you said programming setting the definition, in which they can completely remove uh, decades of work on a subject if it simply no longer fits the the, the programming. I believe that was the opening chapter of 1984. That was Winston Smith's job to delete inconvenient uh, historical records. Hey, that book gets better every year. So th that's another upside to this, Adam, you know, in case you, uh, you're looking for the upside. Yeah, it keeps it's one, one of the few <laughs> fictional books I've read. Seems pretty nonfiction these do, days. Do you guys remember? Do you remember when, like, after Trump got elected, all the libs were like, "I'm gonna read 1984 now." <laughs> yeah, I heard some of them were prepping. It's quite funny. <laughs> They're getting their bug out bag. I remember, I remember seeing like bourgeois libs like on the train into the city reading Brave New World in like April 2017. <laughs> They were like, they, they were like, I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, I'm while they're listening speak. to the Tom Morello podcast, that <laughs> freaking hack. That was video on the rise of fascism and George yeah. Orwell. Yeah. Now, and, this and this redefinition thing. I don't they're they're listening to the to the 1984 audiobook while they drive in their Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Nick, remember when we had that conversation a few years ago on Plantation America? You know, the, uh, uh, the, the white slavery thing. I forget what you all titled it. Okay. There's, uh, I think of you every time I work on this project. Since then, I have written six more books on the subject, averaging 500 pages. Four of them are 700-page books. Okay. But I, at the time we talked, I was up to 18 or 20 semantic excuses for slavery from the period. And one term that really bothered you was indentured servant. So I've continued to look for it in a period source, and I have yet to find it. Uh, at first, I thought, well, maybe somebody used it once, and then after the fact, somebody picked it out, and this is going to be the new standard definition. First of all, I didn't pick up until last year how the term was created. There was a similar term that means uh, quite the opposite. Indented servant. Servant meant slave, nothing else. Indented was turned into, after 
you know, uh, after the period under discussion, the academics, and I don't know who did it first, there was some time around 1900, I believe, took indented, which is a term, the ED uh, delineates the fact that the servant is being acted upon, and they change it to indentured, okay, as if the person is adventuring, venturing. Okay, that when you t when you take that U R E and you put it on the end of a word that used to have E D on it, you reverse the meaning of it. You take something that was an action against the person and you redefine it as an action that the person took. So this uh, screwing around with the semantics uh, of social control is at least 125 years old, and I'm sure it's. It's a lot older. It goes back to the invention of the term serf uh, by the early Christian church to absolve the slave master of owning slaves because the slaves actually owned by the land. And then the master just inst inc incidentally owns the land and therefore has to benevolently care for the slaves that tills it. I'm now up to 42 semantic excuses for bondage, okay, that were used, uh, that were developed between. Uh, 400 AD and about 900 AD. And I actually, that's a huge amount so of redefinition effort. What they're saying now is uh, in the places where they're impo the, the capitalists are imposing uh, mandates to take their experimental uh, vaccine, they're saying that well, you have a choice. You could either take the vaccine or you cannot and not have a job. And yep, I've run into making. these fucks who tell me the same thing and they just smirk and are so satisfied with themselves. I mean, they call themselves progressives, but, you know, they're really tyrants and they they get off on well, hurting this, other people. This is actually one of the few things that they're into that is in line with uh some of the psychopathy of the original progressives in the United States. And we've done, you know, multiple shows on these people. Uh, there were some interesting proposals they had, and there were some proposals they had that were um, uh, duplicitous and vile. But this sort of mentality of raw technocratic uh, uh, labor-driven enforcement is something that is that was in line with the sort of worldview of the turn of the century progressives, the the, the, the Gilded Age progressives of the United States. This is something that they would conceive of. And they would not frame it necessarily even at, and they don't now, they don't frame it necessarily as well. Uh, you, you are, you are, uh, you are liable for uh, not taking it. See, they don't, they don't frame it as a negative. It's strictly, you have a choice. You have a choice to better yourself and you have a choice to um, better your economy, better your company, or you simply have a choice not to. And it's totally up to you. Some of the language they're using now would be very reminiscent of the language that they would have used for something like this in the, in the Gilded Age, in the Progressive Era, which would have been 
which is something that they've started this last week. Vaccine mandates are good for the economy. This is this is the new line. This is the new talking point. Vaccine mandates help the economy. Now, what, what does that really mean when we're saying vaccine mandates help the economy? Um, it doesn't mean anything. But what they're they're really what they're really signaling to one another is. If you don't do this. You are the reason that the economy. Is not doing well. If you do do this, you are you are going to derive part of your newfound purpose. As part of helping build a new sort of technocratic greater good. You are participating in a very uh, complex and scientific process to improve people's lives again. This is this is sort of the subliminal I mean, messaging. This kind of thing, Hans, it goes. I mean, it's not just the Gilded Age. This goes back to the very roots of the modern world. It's that you're being emancipated, liberated into capitalism, taken, yes. you know, from the bondage of the old traditional landed relationship of feudalism and you're freed and by freed we mean that you are forced to go work as a slave in the city or else you die it is interesting that they that you're right you know, they are women this. were freed they were freed from being mothers and they were they were emancipated into the workforce <laughs> i mean well, that, that's what that's the heart of this yeah you're right you know they they, are, they do frame it too as uh as a source of 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 not just comfort but freedom that by agreeing to abide by their rules you have reached a newfound sense of freedom now this is i think an uh, an adoption of of some very basic you know technocratic principles uh, james burnham uh, one of many wrote extensively about this kind of subject, and that when you remove certain uh, responsibilities or hardships from people, part of what you're really doing is removing their capability to grow themselves or to make bigger decisions themselves or potentially become a competitor to you, to your power, or whatever. So how to do this? Well. One way you can frame it is as we're we're relieving the stress, we're relieving the complications that you have. So you can focus on uh, refining your product, refining your craft, refining your life, improving your standard of living. Another thing you can do if you really want to control someone is you can say, ah, oh, we, we are we are guaranteeing your freedom. We are guaranteeing your ability to do something. Now, you're basically being told that you're 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 now allowed to do something that you were doing two years ago. Uh, this is not some. This is not new. You are not being granted anything new. You are you are being allowed to participate uh, in a limited fashion. By the way, uh, with something that you were doing up until twenty months ago. This is, I think, the the total perniciousness of it is that uh, you can effectively convince people that it's good for the economy. You know, you can kind of bamboozle them with this 
this technocratic notion of mass science, uh, you know, mass scientific discovery, mass scientific economic planning, and that uh, this is now your freedom. You have been given a chance to re-enter the life you already had by playing by our rules. And if you choose not to, you are free to do so, but you are not free to re-enter your old life. That's effectively what it is. It's a, it's a freedom to lose what you had. Very, very duplicitous, and I think that... So, sounds uh, a lot like a guy mugging you. You are free to give me your wallet or I'll shoot you and take it anyway. <laughs> You know, it's you know, it's even more deranged is there's not, you know, now there's the talk of, um, well, you will not receive unemployment benefits if you're fired over a maximum you know, a vaccine mandate. You know, you, you have the level of unemployment fraud and welfare fraud in this country is immense and there's nothing done about it. Uh, and lots of people find all kinds of bullshit excuses to get on unemployment, to get on welfare, to get on Medicare or whatever. Uh, but if you, this is the one time, I guarantee you, in which there will be a strict level of enforcement. There will be probably more unemployment fraud enforcement than any time in American history, starting in a few months. Because as they do lay people off, people will try and get creative. They will try and find a way to survive. Many people do not have a lot in savings. You see those, you know, uh, tremendously terrifying uh, studies every now and then that the average American has like $500 in a, in a savings account or something, you know, kind of insane like that. Yeah. And that, uh, and that's probably average. And there's probably a average, large, that's, that's, a large number that average, are negative yeah. net worth that are in debt that are effectively insolvent and, uh, yeah, I don't even know if they're working now, uh, but they, I mean, who are the people who are deciding to go to McDonald's at 13 an hour? I don't know if you've seen the signs, uh, because they're getting desperate with Biden bucks, but there must be somebody not getting Biden bucks um, that is. And I wonder if it breaks down along vaccination lines or anything like that. I haven't thought about that before. You know, James, I wanted to ask in your this travels. This brings me to a, a more fundamental question. Oh, go ahead, Hans. Well, I wanted to ask. Well, you know, why don't you go, Nick? Why don't you go? Well, I wanted to. I wanted to go get a little bit, a little bit metaphysical here for a second, and I want to because I know this is James brought it up, and I know this is a subject that interests him, and I, I want to know what you think, James, is to be the true nature of slavery, because from my perspective, and, and just from my understanding of history. I mean, freedom is kind of a spook in a certain sense. I mean, there are people who have always been total outlaws against civilization. This is stuff that you've, you've written and spoken about. And these people are maybe from a modern perspective, you can see as uh, the freest or like, you know, the, the wandering war band or something like that. But as soon as you start getting into civilization, you're always dealing with relationships of bondage. However, in other times, you would have relationships where there was some reciprocity between master and serf, and there was you had a station in life. You had an appointed 
spot in the hierarchy in which there was some dignity to existence as much as the human existence can have dignity. Uh, whereas the modern world with slavery of capitalism and debt, uh, this is a totally ignoble situation. So I, what? how would you really define at its root slavery? The only thing a slave needs is a master to be a slave. Now, Xenophon probably speaks most clearly in his analysis on what slavery is. There is the victor and there is the slave. And he's talking about the enslavement of entire peoples by other peoples. Um, metaphysically, uh, I regard the definition of a free person is, you know, people don't work without bonds. Okay, so you'll be taught by Baptist preachers that a bond servant uh, is some type of friend or, or something like that, um, but it's based on bondage. Uh, a free person, their bond is going to be their word or their honor. Okay, and uh, honor is a value system that is really tied in with the value of your spoken word and your your individual commitment. So at any point where you get rid of an honor system, and that's why at first the honor system is just limited to uh, to the higher ups in a society. Uh, and this comes from barbarians. Uh, conquering a civilization and wanting to maintain their separate identity by keeping an honor system at the top. And uh, one of the one of the great jobs of uh, anglophone economics and literature has been to destroy the honor system to make it into a purist mercantile system. Uh, a good example of a very broad-based honor system would be the army of Alexander the Great, which is the best war record in human history that I know of, about 35,000 men that were bound by honor. Alexander didn't have the moral authority to murder any of his men. When he got drunk and he killed Cletus the Black, uh, he regarded it himself as a crime. He apologized to the whole army. His entire strike force, the companion cavalry, they were the companions. They were his friends. They all had the right to speak with him directly and to drink with him, which was very important for these Macedonians, and the hydapsis, the, the, the foot companions, his infantry were the foot companions. His most effective unit were the Agriani javelin men. They lived in these still houses in a swamp. They were one of the few Balkan people uh, in the Eastern Balkans that resisted the various, uh, the two Persian invasions. And the king of the Agrianes was a personal friend and drinking companion of Alexander, and his men were his sworn followers because this is a tribal society. In a tribal society, um, the, uh, the the king doesn't really have any authority to lead men in war unless he's successful. And unless he keeps his word with them, this is very, uh, this is very well illuminated in Beowulf. If you were to look at the importance of honor and the word in a tribal society, uh, Beowulf is a good study of it. It's in all the epic poets. I, my favorite is probably the Odyssey for uh, for really good definitions of honor that are a little bit more clear uh, and less nuanced than what you find in Beowulf. But but that that's it. You can't 
you can't have a society that's not all uh, financial debt and power slaves uh, or morality slaves. You know, the, uh, the millions of people that are locked up for just doing drugs, for instance. So you, you can't have that kind of society until you get rid of the bonds of honor and the bonds of a word. I, I find that a very compelling explanation because the problem that you find in the modern world, especially if you ask the people who talk a lot about freedom or liberty, uh, they always place it on a principle of voluntary cooperation or voluntary bond. But I don't think that's sufficient because you still have to live in this world and you're motivated on a very basic level by necessity you have to eat and if, if you enter into voluntary bondage with people without honor you have no recourse yes and liberty and freedom uh, uh freedom is to be free to dominate uh liberty and the sense that people understood it during the foundation of this country uh really meant liberty to dispose of other people as you saw fit so uh just the the modern mind in general is just not capable of understanding how words were used and what they meant 200 250 years ago you know so there, there's a big disconnect there um you know that's uh, it's tough, but the uh, the the fact that your that your word is your bond has become a great oddity, something very rare in our society today. I know a man who lost millions of dollars, who uh, bills eight million dollars a year as a physician, but he was giving guitar lessons to keep the heat on in his. Uh, in his house that he built with his own hands because he made a handshake deal with his three business partners in a hand, in a surgical practice that they would go their own ways and they would all keep their own patients. Well, then these three guys who were all members of a certain tribe uh, talked to their lawyer and they found out that my friend had twice as many patients as the other three put together. So. They basically just screwed him really hard, and the guy didn't make a dime for years. Uh, and he eventually built his own business back up by himself. He still goes nine months out of the year without drawing any earnings at all, just to keep the business open. So that that he's a man of honor. He's a guy. I made a handshake deal with him in 2002. I will coach. You're young man, and you will treat me as my doctor. This was a deal that he offered me. And he hasn't had anybody for me to coach for 10 years. So I offered to pay him. I tried to pay him. I even sent checks to his office, and he has his people send them back to me. He said the deal was, I said, yeah, but I haven't coached anybody for you for 10 years. He said, it doesn't matter. That's my problem because I don't have people for you to coach. Okay, it's not your problem. This was the deal that we shook hands on. So, you know, this is uh, this is the man that you want in your life as a man. Uh, and he's also the man that you want as a business partner if you're a savage mercantilist. 
Uh, you know, my right. father made three different handshake deals and lost his shirt with business partners. You know, so it, it goes together. I'd like to actually explore this because this is something that uh, I struggle with in business and in just in personal relationships whereby uh, I'm not going to pretend like I'm perfect. No one is, of course, but uh, I try to keep my word. And one thing that I notice is that uh, some people do as well, and many others, unfortunately, do not. And it's a big thing for me uh, personally. And I, what I struggle with, though, is I don't want to be taken advantage of because obviously the, the classic prisoner's dilemma is the guy who keeps his word and the other guy who doesn't wins. Uh, so what you want to do is avoid obviously getting screwed over. Um, and then on a macro level, what I also worry about is if people are becoming so cynical that they never can behave in an honorable way and everything devolves into this cynical transactionalism where people are stabbing each other in the back, uh, the entire society unravels into, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the right word is, but it's, it's, uh, it's not honorable. Okay. And I think we would agree that if everyone behaved honorably, that would be a better society. But if you are the last honorable man in a dishonorable society, you are at a huge disadvantage. So where do we go in a society that seems to reward dishonor more and more, if not more than honor? The most recent example in history is the Waffen SS. The last honorable man in the society without honor, honor is the ultimate tragic figure. Uh, and you know, you're right, Nick, about the Waffen SS. They weren't even allowed to use locks to lock their own equipment up. They they lived on an otter system, the regular Wehrmacht. Uh, those guys were permitted to lock their own personal goods up, but it was uh, it was beyond the pale for members of you know that elite branch in the military to do that. And that's what uh, it's gangs fail. Uh, gangs routinely fail. In, in their autumn systems because they're infected with the criminal mentality. Uh, in any society that worships profit, uh, an honor system is going to be hard to implement, and you have to be very picky. So, uh, you know, uh, Hans and, uh, and I had spent a good deal of time discussing the Peloponnesian War one time. The, um, uh, the Spartans had, a, had an honor system, but it was also their job to lie to the enemy. You don't lie to the enemy, or you lie to the enemy. If you're if you're totally truthful to the enemy all of the time, then eventually you're going to do a disservice to yourself and your people. And with the Athenians, uh, even though the word to them was sacred at the higher levels, uh, they had a big problem with uh, with maintaining social cohesion. And I think it had not to do with a fault in their philosophical underpinnings, but with the fact that they were the one Greek uh, city-state community that had been the most profitable. So the, uh, the ultimate value of profitability of coming out on top, I think that started to undermine uh, their, their reverence for the word. To, 
it's it's a dance. It's a problem. Anytime you start mixing an honor system with a civilization, you will have a problem. The Native Americans, the American Indians dealt with this shit all of the time. Okay, they were too literal minded with their honor system. They were scrupulously honorable with each other uh, to the point of guaranteed cruelty if they caught you and you were from an enemy tribe. And they had a very difficult time even parsing out uh, how to communicate with people who uh, weren't ruled by an honor system. But in many cases, the representatives would be people who had personal honor. And this is one of the most duplicitous things that the uh, American brass would do, is they would take a man who had earned personal honor in aboriginal terms and in pure masculine terms, keeping his word uh, and fighting and backing his words up. And they would use him as a go-between to try to get a veneer uh, to, to try to suck the natives into some kind of agreement that was that eventually the letter of the treaty was going to be turned against them. You know, and it's something that's become, it's been overused in movies and fiction, you know, by Lawrence of Arabia. Yes. Yes. Uh, Gordon, Gordon of cartoons. I understand he was personally disgusted by the, betrayal of the Arabs that he had made uh, deals with when it turns out that the crown was just using him this was the problem with anybody honoring the deals he had anybody from that from the uh, the holdover honor culture that was on the point of the spear in the British Empire uh, Richard Francis Burton Chinese Gordon uh and Lawrence of Arabia, they would be in a constant moral crisis because they uh, they were operating under a code of honor that was lateral with their peers, uh, and they would uh, when they made alliances with people, they would have this this lateral structure, and they knew that they were ultimately sucking these people into a hierarchical structure that was really had uh, mercantile underpinnings. You know, so it was uh, the naked prey uh, gives you a good study of this, of how this worked out in a really prosaic way. Cornell Wild movie uh, where he's uh, he's a big game hunter. Yeah, the guy in Africa. Yeah. yeah it, so that, that shows you that, that shows you an honor system in operation across cultures and failing in operation within the same culture. Because he warns the the guy that he's guiding, like, hey, you have to treat these people with respect. This is their land. You know, so the, the, the honor system fails there because he doesn't have the financial standing of the guy that is his employer. And, you know, the root term uh, for employer is user, the person that uses the employee as a tool. Okay, so uh, the uh, once you get into the employee-employer situation, it's almost impossible to maintain an honor, to maintain an honor code. You, you've got to be cagey and you've got to be, it's almost like you have to have a criminal sense for who's not honorable so that you can then behave honorably with everybody that you possibly can and not get burned by the scumbags. You know, so it's very tough. It's the hardest thing that we as men in this stage in history have to deal with is how to be honorable and and ultimately an overwhelmingly dishonorable society. So, James, in your travels, 
Uh, I know you are uh, a man very familiar with supermarkets. Have you, as our chief anthropologist and our chief uh, man on the ground in America, have you noticed some empty shelves? Have you noticed some some sparse markets? Have you noticed uh, some people going without, some wanting of uh, basic necessities? Um, the just on time slotting system cannot work under pressure. You know, I've worked in supermarkets for 38 years. I managed one for four years. A snowstorm in New England that that just interrupts truck deliveries for three days. That takes two weeks to recover from. Okay, now uh, most supermarkets are not capable of they don't have anybody the, the, the way store sets have been done in fact it's so inefficient jim street paid me four thousand dollars out of his pocket to set up his supermarket because he knew that the 30 people the 30 temporary laborers being sent by the wholesaler to work for him for one week were just going to screw it all up Okay, so I was there as a fail safe, an expensive fail safe, and I ended up saving him like thirty five thousand dollars. I mean, so he made the right choice. But the 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 way supermarkets, when they expanded into the chains, they got away from neighborhood supermarkets, and you don't have a neighborhood guy that's a grocery manager that's worked in that store for 30 years. In fact, most chains have eliminated the grocery manager position. The person in charge of 65% of your inventory, that position was eliminated 15 years ago in most chains. So uh, you don't have, in most cases, an on-site person with a sense of urgency and the sense of uh, the sense of what sells in that neighborhood and what could be available in the warehouse to be able to adjust that. I, I love being in a situation where I had blown out shelves and whole categories that weren't available because then I could buy stuff from an overrun supplier at a discount and sell the shit out of it. But you just maybe one in every 200 supermarkets has got that guy. So there's going to be a big lag uh, and there's going to be a lot of empty shelves. It's not because there isn't stuff at the, at the warehouse to fill those shelves, but there's nobody with the initiative or even the authority to say, you know what? We can't get this stuff this week. I, I see that they got 62 pallets of this other stuff at the warehouse. Let me buy it. He's not allowed to do that. We couldn't get, we had three of our best-selling items discontinued when I worked for a company that had 1,300 stores because some meathead put the wrong item in the wrong slot. These items went down to zero movement because, you know, we all figured out that if you bought the Cadbury nut chocolate bar, that which was like the number three seller in the category, that you were going to get like the number 50 seller. So everybody stopped ordering it. So the POS system just eliminated it from the inventory. The same thing with pickled beets. You couldn't buy pickled beets if you were working for that company because Harvard beets got accidentally slotted in the pickled beets category. So my grocery manager had to go to another supermarket to buy his pickled beets. He wasn't allowed to order them through the wholesaler. So that's a problem. You're going to see less problems in an independent supermarket like Gershbeck's grocery store in Middle River, Maryland. They're going to have full shelves all the time. 
because they just do it themselves and they're not slaves to a system. So this is going to give the small guy a chance of hanging in there. And initially during COVID, the people I know in the supermarket business, and I, I was offered a few jobs, but I turned them down. Uh, the uh, volume initially doubled. It is still 1.75 pre-COVID. And uh, there's a lot of food being shipped in this country. And I don't know where it's going to. Uh, I know a guy at a Walmart uh, distribution center who's not allowed to unpack a lot of containers that are just sitting on a lot. They don't, even, they don't even know what sent them. It's probably somebody holding it back so that they can make inflation money on it down the road because they know inflation is going to kick in. And, you know, uh, so uh, there's a lot of food supply problems uh, right now in grains. It's soy and grains right now uh, are the biggest food supply problems. The beef supply problems are artificial. They're inflicted. Uh, various uh, corporate NGO and government interests want the elimination of beef agriculture. Okay. So, far, far, farmers have not seen an increase in yeah. the uh, or ranchers, I should say, have not seen an increase in the price per head. At the same time, the price uh, per pound at the supermarket has gone up. And so that's all been captured by the uh, meat packers, and uh, I've talked about this before, but yeah. I've also spoken to uh, ranchers uh, personally, and they confirm that, that there's there's no money in cattle right now. Which yeah, is what yeah, you would would if there was an efficient market, the opposite would be the case because there's apparently some shortage. Well, that means prices go up for them; they would make money, and they're not. So there's there's something uh, going wrong there. By canned corn beef, uh, it, probably by 2030, beef. Raising sale and consumption is going to be against the wall in the United Kingdom and Canada. Uh, that's I think that's a that's a pretty conservative ex- estimate. Actually, the timetable is no beef or diesel in the U.S. by 2035. Okay, so you guys will be around to see that. So, uh, <laughs> Who, who's telling you there's no diesel? Because I could I could tell you that's a non-starter if you're doing mining construction. Or long haul trucking. There, there's no way you're going to go that diesel. It's there's the a there's a really good there's a, or there's several good resources on this sort of topic. There's a great YouTube channel. Um, who a uh, now uh, retu- retired uh, dissident right personality uh, still somewhat around uh, uh, referred to me uh, called Lo- Lonesome Lands. This guy does not get a lot of views. Some of his videos get. 20,000 views, some of them get 2,000. Um, but he's a cattleman, and he goes into excessive detail on um, cattle ranching price manipulation, onto beef price manipulation, all the details of the supply chain, all the strange market phenomena. Um, he talks about markets themselves, talks about supermarkets, talks about how his beef is actually sold. Uh, and he's been calling it the cattle market crisis for you know going on almost a year now. Uh, and some of his perspectives go back over a year, talking about how you know, the cattle industry has been effectively destroyed uh, through a variety of mechanisms. But the end result will be effectively what James is saying, is that there will just be a complete shortage of cattle. There will be a shortage of beef. Uh, I don't think it's co- coincidental that we've now, you know, reached a uh, a a new height in propaganda for the fake meat. 
Have you guys noticed this? It's uh, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. The, the uh, fake meat advertising. Those are precious oh, yeah. big time. Big time. I, I saw okay, an so amusing those... uh, counter uh, um, agiprop, whatever you want to call it, from the meat industry. Whoever made this, or just some you know disgruntled citizen, he uh, he mashed together like meatloaf, a bunch of meat into the shape of three carrots. And he's like, uh, in response to the calls to ban meat, we are now trying to replace vegetables with meat. I thought that was kind of funny. But no, I, I agree with you. Those are purchase slots. Okay, so when you see an end cap on those coffin cases, we used to call them, in your like Safeway meat section, and you see it filled and hardly any of it being bought uh, with all this artificial meat, uh, that's uh, that's a two-part contract. Somebody has bought that through making a deal with the meat buyer for Safeway, which is somebody that's making a decision that's going to, you know, it, it's going to affect three thousand stores, and there's going to be money paid to reserve that slot, and that product was not bought by Safeway. That's usually a free fill. So first, they'll give you five hundred dollars. Uh, for that end cap for a certain period of time, and then they'll give you a free fill. That way, in case you have to throw the shit out, uh, there's no loss in it. And everywhere where I've seen this artificial meat in different supermarkets, it conforms to that. This was not a decision made by anybody in that organization that thought this stuff was going to sell. This was a top-down centralized uh, decision that was made in the corporate office somewhere under a lot of pressure. I mean, you see a lot of this kind of thing where you have the uh, corporate firms that are doing things that are totally contrary to what you know free market economists would have you believe that they would do theoretically. I mean, the, the vaccine stuff is an obvious example. It's, I mean, <laughs> we're just going to start firing half the workforce. What, this is going to be what good for profit? Uh, labor. I, I talked to somebody recently that was involved in a labor protest at a Nabisco bakery. Um, and actually, people who work for Nabisco traditionally have done pretty well for themselves. Uh, a lot of grocery managers would uh, move on to become a uh, a Nabisco uh, sales representative. Uh, they were, this person told me that this was not a town that had a lot of African Americans in it. And they had a bunch of men and women, a lot of middle-aged people holding up signs on strike at this Nabisco bakery and ghetto black guys from big cities in private security uniforms were brought in to beat the shit out of these people. Okay, uh, you might be able to see other parallels in current American uh, violence and law enforcement. Okay, uh, well, Kellogg's going on strike. Speaking of grain, uh, I just want to—I just want to say real quick to what sure. James is saying. This would explain why many of the now defunct Afghan security enforcers have been brought to the United States. <laughs> yeah, that's a great idea. You would have got a promotion. <laughs> I mean, this is up. a tale. This is this is extremely trad. I mean, Joe Biden 
is a traditionalist. He's bringing in foreign mercenaries to oppress his own population. Every smart leader in history has done that. I mean, what a, it's brilliant. We're going to bring in the regime enforcers, the Bakabazi enthusiasts, to torment you. If you uh, – like these people striking at John Deere right now who are mad that they're making barely – you know, they're not even making 60 grand a year. They're making a pittance. Then their benefits are shit, and it's just a miserable job. They're treated poor. They're treated poorly. And John Deere is a terrible company. It imports most of its replacement parts, and most of its manufacturing is done overseas now. It, it's a sham. And you know, if this goes on, and there's any real disruption that becomes too difficult to deal with for the regime. Why wouldn't you bring in <laughs> professional pedophiles and murderers and thugs from a place like Afghanistan to get these people back in line? That would explain why they're here, why they were brought over in the hundreds of thousands. So just a thought. To it's a good idea. Story. It's a good yeah. idea. Yeah. Oh, buck canned corned beef. Uh, canned corned beef, the way the can is structured, it lasts longer than just about any other canned good. A lot of currently manufactured canned goods really don't last that long. You know, they'll sometimes pop within two years on the shelf. A canned good's good as long as it doesn't pop or get a pinhole in it. But uh, I, just get canned corned beef if you can, if you can still get it. That's the one thing I would stock up on in the supermarkets. You, you, can, get, you can get tuna fish, you can get uh, chicken canned. I mean, all that stuff uh, I think is good to have on hand just in case. Yeah, that uh, the cans that have the rounded bevel bottoms don't last as long. So that old style canned corned beef thing, that lasts a long while. And, you know, beef's really expensive. The... Uh, I'd recommend there is a fellow, I think he got kicked off YouTube. His name is Christian. He's got a, uh, a this thing called Ice Age Farmer that he does. He tracks agriculture manipulation, uh, you know, corporate capture of uh, food resources and stuff like that. That might be something that you and your uh, listeners would be interested in. I'm vaguely familiar with him. Yeah, he, he does good material. And yeah, he's, you know, he's been... Um, Something that he's been bringing up for a while now is how many countries have uh, for, I think starting around late last year or early this year, have begun limiting or halting entirely exports of certain agricultural products that very, very quietly and slowly uh, cross-border agricultural exchange is dying. The greenhouses in Holland uh, were just turned off. Yeah, uh, they've, 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 yeah, they, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. Yeah, they, they've completely collapsed. And, uh, but what's very interesting, I think, what Ice Age Farmer had brought up a while back, which is still true. Wait, why, why is that? Because many, of the energy uh, shortages in, in yeah, all, they, they in are entirely in reliant. Yeah, they're entirely reliant on um, extra carbon dioxide. Which has uh, basically, you know, that carbon the carbon market has collapsed in Europe, but they're also dependent on cheap electricity, and they're dependent on heating. And one of the ways you can do this in the Netherlands, um, which gets particularly cold in the winter, particularly cold and wet, so it's hard to uh, maintain a warm greenhouse atmosphere, is just through cheap, low energy prices and, and good amount of natural gas, 
Uh, and so those markets have effectively collapsed in Europe. But what Ice Age Farmer had brought up a while back, which is still true, is that many South American countries have already begun halting agricultural shipments. And for, and for countries like Brazil and Argentina and Chile and Paraguay, uh, and even some of the lesser ones, Colombia, Bolivia, this is an essential part of the economy, food export. If they're halting food exports, well, beef in particular um, is a huge uh, export for Brazil, and that's yeah. one of the reasons why uh, the American rancher is struggling because uh, there's there's no protection against uh, these giant beef conglomerates in Brazil, and it's interesting if they're stopping those exports. Uh, I doubt I don't it, know about but it'd be beef. interesting to see. I don't know about beef, yeah, I don't, I don't know about that, but I know that's... No, uh, it, 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 it is a major, major component of their ex- agricultural yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I don't know if they've halted the export of beef yet. Oh, okay. They have halted the export of, of a lot of just agricultural products. And this is the case, this is slowly becoming the case around the world, either because they can no longer produce them, there's been a series of bad droughts, the supply chain... Uh, is too chaotic and there's no guarantee that the food will get to its location before it rots or they strictly do not have enough food stored up and they can no longer safely export without risking a famine. So you have a cacophony of problems hitting the food market. Um, and you know what you're saying about the, uh, the American cattle rancher getting killed by imports. You know, this is the same with the American dairy farmer. The American dairy farmer, we've, t- I mean, we've talked about this several times. I, I'm sorry, guys. I promised to do a milk show at some point or a dairy show. Uh, the American dairy farmer is, is in complete disrepair. And one of the reasons why they're in complete disrepair has been this, uh, unironically, this Canadian question. Canada has had this capability to, uh, you know, through a variety of unfair government subsidies and conglomeration and and a bunch of other methodologies, uh, you know, out com- not just outcompete, but completely strip away a lot of American dairy farmers' ability to produce milk for their local market. I mean, you have you have local dairy distribution in the state of Wisconsin importing Canadian milk. I mean, this is a state that milk practically just oozes out of the ground. <laughs> It's a state that used to produce so much dairy. It was known around the world for producing dairy. Now you have them importing Canadian Canadian dairy. Uh, so that, I mean, it's a, it's a completely precarious position, and it's left us in this state, which is why I was at trying to you know get James' opinion on, which is uh, are we at the point where we've hit such market disequilibrium we could effectively run out of certain kinds of food, and I think. We're starting to already see that occur. Yeah, that uh, the cut sheet has expanded. You know, you're, you'll, when you're invoice, you'll you'll get a whole list of things that the the warehouse couldn't fulfill. The cut sheet has expanded a lot. Um, there's um, there's outfits, the big outfits like Costco and walmart if you want to look and see where a commodity is going to come up short or a certain category of food rather than you know your particular flavor of candy bar or whatever if you want to uh track uh where that is then i'd recommend either going to walmart or costco and costco and seeing if they're missing 
a major category? Are they having uh, are they having uh, something absent as a category as opposed to well now we just got to buy this brand or that brand? Uh, so that's and I don't do that kind of shopping. I you know wherever I live, I usually just shop at a corner store. Uh, and get stuff where i'm at in utah they actually grow a lot of their own food i i helped for two months uh due to planting beds shovel shit and uh my free time i harvest uh, berries and rose hips and stuff in the mountains for them for their vitamins for the winter but uh, if i had a costco membership i would i would be really curious because i've been in a couple of those places before with my son and i'd be really curious to see what they didn't have because that would be a tell because an outfit like that buys way ahead of time and they buy entire runs they have runs that are made just for them and they're at the head of the line you know they get their stuff first yeah this this is a um i was able to find a summary of one of the um the Lonesome Lands videos, they have their own site. And on uh, some of the more complex, uh, you know, cattle market financial details, they, they will try and summarize it in written form. Um, and this is back in uh, mid-May or early May of this year. And this is a summary of what uh, a, uh, this one uh, Kansas uh, cattle rancher named Street Steve Stratford uh, talks about. He says, uh, uh, so Steve goes through the math backwards, which is how a cattleman has to do it when looking at the futures board and figuring out what he needs to make a profit. If you turn what he says around forward, it would look like this. Steve uses the example of a feed yard buying 950-pound steer. They will feed the steer until it weighs 1,450 pounds. Then they will sell him to a pack to be butchered. In order to know what you can pay for the 950-pound steer, the feed yard has to figure out what he will be using well, he will be worth using the uh, the CME, which is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, uh, live cattle futures price. The futures price is the price that you can contract to sell cattle at a set date in the future. The feed yard also has to figure out their cost of grain. Steve conservatively figures this has to be $1.30 per pound, and grain prices are continuing to go up. And like I said, this article was written months ago, and they have certainly, uh, I think, nearly doubled in that time. Uh, meaning that they will spend at least $650 to get that animal to 1,450 pounds. According to Steve, with an August fat cattle future price of of $1.17 per pound, in order to break even on feed costs, not including costs for facilities, labor, equipment, you would have had to buy that steer at $1.08 per pound. 30 days ago, that steer was purchased for between $1.30 and $1.40 per pound. On a 950-pound steer, that is a loss of between $209 and $330 on one animal. Now multiply that by hundreds or thousands. Good luck staying in business. Good luck to the guy selling the 950-pound with the lighter cattle that want to get a decent price in the future. Uh, and then he goes on, while well, cattle feeders are now losing hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of dollars on every animal that they feed, the beef packers are now making hundreds of dollars more on any animal that they buy. This part was for the guy selling cattle to the feed yard. Your nine weight steer, 900 pound steer that you've owned for a year has devalued $30 per hundred and the product it turns into has went up $30 per hundred. Uh, so what you're looking at here, you have this cartel that basically owns control over 80% of the cattle processing uh, beef pa- or beef packing uh, 
uh, market. And, you know, it's, it's what it's JBS, Tyson, Cargill. Uh, and I always forget the, the, the fourth one, there's four companies that control massive amount of the market. Uh, and I think JBS is actually Brazilian owned, if I remember correctly. I've, uh, so I've heard that L- uh, at least two of the majors in America that operate are Brazilian. It's It must be that fourth one, uh, National or something like that. Um, National Packers, I, yeah, something like that. And so anyways, you, you, have a, you have a situation here <laughs> where you can, you know, through commodities price manipulation, through economies of scale, just through corruption, uh, you can find a way to make money off of processing less product. So it's a pure racketeering scheme. You effectively gatekeep and control how much of the product enters the market. You actively destroy all the small-time cattle ranchers and you rob the end consumer of more and more of their money. So what does this, you know, what does this look like? Is this the the major meat packers, the beef packers, are they looking to just get into the cattle farming business? Are they just looking to acquire the ranches themselves? So, you know, what you do see in times of like great food insecurity is a lot of vertical consolidation, which normally ends up making it worse in the short term. In the long run, doesn't really have any great effect. You're just as worse off as you were in the short term. It doesn't ever get better. It doesn't particularly get worse. There's some efficiencies gained, but effectively what happens is that there's fewer people with larger amounts of control over a huger part of the process. That's what is that is that kind of where we're headed at this point where the processors, the packers, the distributors also own the land, they they own the cattle, they own the vegetables. You know, what where does this lead? Are we kind of seeing the centralization of agriculture in America? This is you know, it's very strange in a country like America, which was always envisioned as having the potential to be this uh, and it is an agricultural superpower with a with a you know rel- until relatively recently recently a uh, a large degree of diffusion in how that agricultural market is actually managed and how it actually operates uh, and there was a great deal of freedom and there was a great deal of 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 market entry points that people could get into but you could become a farmer it wasn't easy uh, it was it, it's never been easy. But you could do it. You could enter the agricultural market if you had the money, if you had the skill, if you had the will to do it. Now, I don't know. And in the end, you will wind up with less food. It's more expensive and it's harder to come by. That's the kind of the end result of all this. And a few people make a lot of money off of that process. But the, with the meat pack, with the, the meat situation, uh, I just have two things to mention. One is that many small meat packers have been put out of business through regulation. Um, it's almost it's a, in a lot of places. It's essentially against the law for you to raise your own uh, beef, 
slaughter it and sell it in pieces. Um, that, that's one part. The other thing is, since the 1970s, uh, cattle ranchers have been under attacks. The It used to be blamed on aliens that also abducted and raped people and chipped them and stuff. But the cattle mutilation thing is a real thing. I work for a lady here doing her yard work who's husband, uh, she's a widow now, was a cattle rancher. And some of his uh, uh, cattle were surgically mutilated. You know, these guys, aren't they? they know when an animal gets at something. That's been going on since the 70s. And it happens always near military bases that have helicopters. And it happens at night, and they find... Uh, uh, they find uh, phosphorescent markings on the backs of some of these things. So who knows? In different ways, uh, you know, agriculture has been under attack by the U.S. government and by NGOs and large international corporations since I was a child in the 1960s. Well, you know, cattle ranchers historically, large farmers and cattle ranchers with private interests are um, – I mean, they have the capability to be kind of governments on themselves. They become institutions. They're able to impact the local political order. They're able to kind of participate in statewide politics, federal politics. Um, they control a lot of influence and, and a huge. They can they can have a huge chunk of economic influence. Everything from how utilities operate to what industries are allowed to operate nearby, and you know, because if you control large amounts of land, that that's the sort of power that you have. It would make sense if this process has been ongoing for decades, and it, there are some indications it has been that there has been this gradual process to try and wean uh, mostly white Americans. Uh, and, and Europeans to a lesser extent, but white North Americans off of off of meat uh, for a variety of reasons. But this does seem to have been part of the problem. And I think that ranchers, through self-interest as well as maybe uh, you know sentimental reasons, probably wanted to exert some level of their own influence against that sort of thing. And if you wanted to send a message to a rancher, if you wanted to scare him, if you wanted to uh, make him understand a certain reality, why wouldn't you, you know, sneak into his land in the middle of the night and kind of surgically mutilate a couple of his cattle uh, before he ever even realizes it? And just yeah, it's, usually, it's usually prized bulls that yeah. are mutilated, the most expensive animal. Yeah. And when you do that, you're removing potential future revenue in the millions of dollars per bull, effectively. You only have to go to two to three degrees of separation from that bull before you hit a couple million dollars worth of, of profit for that cattle rancher. Yeah. It, no. Go ahead. Uh, there's one, th one thing that I just found fascinating, and I guess it's uh, uh, it is related, but I'm, uh, I'm interested in the possible – unconscious or instinctive motivations of people. If you uh, read the Odyssey uh, and the Iliad, when wine or bread is served, it is served by women and slaves, always. Uh, when meat is served, it's served by a free man who also butchers it, 
and cooks it. You know, the master of the house will do this. It was, it's, of course, an Aryan holdover ritual. Uh, this was a conquering class of people that were cleaving to their hunter-herder identity as they warded it over these agriculturalists. But that was something that went on for thousands of years. And it's at the foundation of our civilization. And um, I have to think that there's just something, uh, there's some kind of myth inside of people uh, when it comes to uh, meat production, distribution, and consumption that also expresses itself in the vegan hysteria that meat eating is evil, you know, in the, uh, in the opposite way. You know, yeah, if... If they succeeded in separating um, white North Americans and Europeans from uh, from cattle, from cows, from the bovine, uh, you know the descendants of the Ice Age Oroch, uh, this will be the first time that's happened in five, six thousand years. 7,000 years since that relationship began. So it would be a, a seminal collapse of an identity to not have the cow, to not have the cattle. Uh, you know, th th this, is, this is the bedrock of modern, this is one of the bedrocks of modern civilization. And I'm not, I'm not even being facetious. The, the cattle is absolutely essential to modern civilization in a way that in ways you could not possibly imagine from an epigenetic standpoint from an agricultural standpoint from a materials production standpoint from a cultural standpoint i mean you know this this animal is is a huge part of of who we are and there has to be some kind of humiliation ritual aspect to it. There's something to it that that they they need to finally kind of separate people from uh, from this. Not to mention that it will leave people in a state of like you know, future generations in a state of permanent health disrepair. I mean, if you don't have access to to dairy and red meat, you are just not going to be a healthy person. <laughs> I can't. I can't imagine how you're going to wind up. You know, this. This you. You will wind up some. You know, very kind of uh, small and weak and and not even very smart. You will just have not enough fat for your brain to grow with. You will. You will become stupider over time. So it is. A, it, it is a, a a strange dysgenic epigenetic process that they are attempting to inflict on people. From a system perspective, it's it's good, though. Yeah, from a system perspective, it's perfect. If you're looking at long-term interest, uh, but, you know, then the two generations down the line being deprived almost entirely of, of the cow uh, would make them very, very easy slaves indeed. Amen. Uh, James, you had me look up a, uh, a picture, speaking of uh, mutilations, uh, of people having their noses removed in front of a large uh, troop uh, grouping in front of uh, some sort of military 
I guess, uh, punishment. I'm not quite sure, but it's by uh, Hogarth. And there's a series of these by this artist on uh, military punishments. Did you want to uh, discuss that with us? Uh, I, I would like to point out that uh, the troop of soldiers that would be watching um, uh, doing this from, from from memory, but I studied the illustration. The troop of soldiers that were watching were not free people. These were basically guys that were beaten up and dragged to camp. Conscripts. And Right. Okay. And the person that was in charge of doing that would be two people. The junior officer that's standing behind the bucket where the noses and ears are being tossed uh, and the branding iron is is placed there uh, to put in the coals to brand these guys. Uh, The British military branded men until after... 1860, for instance. Uh, this illustration is like 1730, something like that. The junior officer and the man with the pointy pope hat, that's a grenadier. The grenadiers would be actually healthy, strong men, uh, five feet ten to six feet tall. They'd be in their separate regiment, and they were in charge of going out and abducting men that were five foot five inches tall. No commander wanted men sh- shorter than five foot five inches, although some of them complained that all of their conscripts shipped to them were under five foot five inches. Uh, the ears are being cut off. This is the, the root of the earring. The earring is a slave marking, like uh, putting a, a tag in a livestock's ear or something like that. It's uh, sanctified in Mosaic law uh, before the book of Leviticus was written. And uh, your ears are cut off, uh, so you're actually disowned by the military that owns you. Your nose is cut off uh, to erase your identity. Uh, your head is shaved. And you are branded. Uh, And then you are sold. They would have been sold for 14 years. I would like to point out that the man cutting the noses off of the European men while the other European men watch and supervise uh, is a Negro. Okay, Uh, and I think a lot of what's been happening in our society recently, the repurposing of the and political correctness and basically the elevation of people of African descent as a like nightly class, uh, that comes full circle to old mercantile systems of control uh, that were broken up at the foundation of this country in about 1804. Uh, the only thing that was decreed uh, to be the white man's lot in the foundational documents of this country, the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Northwest Ordinances. The only thing that was given to the white man was to bear arms for this country and die in combat. That was it. That was the only thing set aside for him, and it was a duty, and it was a duty that had to be given to him if you were going to displace some 600 warrior tribes of their lands. As soon as that happened at the end of the 1800s, the white man was sent overseas to subdue the world to form a global order. Well, once you hit a global world order, even if it's not complete and doesn't include certain countries, then the purpose for this person who was to bear arms for the republic kind of goes away 
and you're going to need to start introducing uh, mercenaries, foreigners, uh, you know, racial enemies as functionaries for your system of control. Uh, so that's why I think that that's what really struck me. That 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 illustration from like 1730 that just echoed down to me as a guy who wasn't. Uh, I was. Uh, always in danger of the Baltimore police department coming after me for defending myself against black men who were allowed to attack me, you know? So that's, that illustration really spoke to me. And I thought it was germane to some of our discussion earlier. So. Uh, James, uh, I, this is a question I have that I meant to ask earlier, but it's just conversation got away from us. And I wanted to ask about fear and particularly your assessment of the white liberal and what it is because we're, we're dealing with the fear everywhere. I mean, you can see it in people's faces in the supermarket. <laughs> I mean, to bring it full circle, that's actually a place you see a lot of it. Uh, what is it? Do you think that it's the heart of the, the, the essence of the heart of darkness, the, the fear in the libtard? What, what uh, is the object of fear? Uh, his mortality or his her mortality, its mortality, uh, the uh, the deracinated uh, progressive personality of our postmodern time. This is a person who was cultivated and recruited to be a member of a collective godhood. This is why disease works so good for policing them. This is a god like Ares. Diomedes almost killed Ares outside of Troy. And it was only Zeus was the only one that was able to cure the lesser gods. The uh, most gods in ancient myths, uh, they're not really immortal. They're just kind of like... Uh, uh, movie vampires that can be killed but just don't die of diseases and stuff. So when you're looking at this modern liberal American person and a the conservative, a lot of conservative people have a lot of liberal subtext in them, uh, you're seeing the shiver of a god that knows that she can die. And she's horrified. You know, I just, I, I, I just think of some dreaming God that's been awakened to their mortality. These were, I, I saw a uh, Joe Rogan and uh, Jordan Peterson talking about how uh, one episode talking about how mankind is the ascendant God. You know, that eventually we're going to improve our intelligence and our health so much that we're going to get out into space and we're going to conquer the universe. And we're essentially going to ascend and uh, somehow become at least equivalent with time. Zeus Almighty was the one of his many cult names was the time holder. OK, he was the only being that was outside of time. The other gods actually lived within time. You know, so I think of uh, an ancient Greek bitch god, and a lot of those ancient Greek gods were bitchy, that looks in the mirror and sees her mortality. That's what I think of when I think of, uh, you know, the liberal American. So would it be then uh, some, it would be a compassionate liberal 
this mortal coil, don't you think? <laughs> Our crime would surely think so. <laughs> And Achilles, most definitely. Uh, there's an interesting conversation Achilles has with a boy, a youth, who ran away from battle uh, when Achilles was choking the river commander with corpses. And uh, the boy begged for mercy and reminded Achilles that you captured me when on the island. It was a certain island. It was the island where Achilles slew the father and brothers of Briseis and then took her as his slave. And then, of course, Agamemnon takes, takes her away. On that same island, uh, Achilles captures this boy and he sells him into slavery. And Priam, the boy, he's one of Priam's many sons. Priam, uh, redeems this boy for 100 oxen. And the boy tells Achilles in so many words, surely my father will redeem me from, uh, from you as well. And Achilles looks at him and, and he says, you, you really don't know what this is about. <laughs> yeah. This was a man who actually decided to fight against the gods. And, uh, he butchered the boy. He didn't even think the boy was worthy to be included among the 12 Trojan youths that he was going to sacrifice and did sacrifice on his friend Patroclus's uh, uh, funeral pyre. So I think uh, uh, a reading of Achilles as a character, as uh, a pro Protestant against, pow against a power structure. Anybody that listens to this that reads the Iliad again, I would I would look at it in that fashion and pay attention to uh, a discussion between Poseidon and Apollo when they discuss why they should maybe step outside of the power structure uh, because it's corrupt. Mm -hmm.